We're going to continue, and we're, we're in the book of Genesis, and we finally get there as we get to chapter 37 and the story of Joseph. You'll remember months ago as we started Genesis, uh, I recommended to folk to get a copy of, of this book, which most of which is just the book of Genesis that we can read the whole story, but it's actually called Joseph and the Triumph of Grace, and it's the story of Joseph that features heavily in the book. In fact, it's got the book of the, the story of Joseph, which is the last 13 chapters in comic book form in the front of it, and then in the, la in the, the end of it, it's got the whole of the book of Genesis. If you didn't get one of these, I, I, I got 50 odds of them, and they've all gone. Um, but you can actually order it from the Bible Society directly, pay for it online, and they will deliver it to your door. I think the next email out will maybe repeat that link because it might be good to do that as we go through the book of Joseph. Or maybe you could buy one and give it to a friend or, or a child or buy a whole load of them and hand them out to people and just get them to share this great story. I, as I, I was reading it um, again, every time I read a bit, I wanted to burst into song which wasn't a hymn, it was Andrew Lloyd Webber, but um, there we have it. So we're going to read chapter 37 of the story, the beginning of the story of Joseph. Let's hear the word of God. Jacob, Joseph's father, lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, which is another name for, for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. Uh, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. Uh, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said to them, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and, and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous because of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Sheshem. And Israel, that's Jacob again, said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Sheshem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and the flocks and bring word back to me. Then 
he sent him off for the valley of Hebron. When Joseph, Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and said to him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Uh, they moved on from here. The man answered, I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. But when they saw him in the distance, before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this so that he could rescue him and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came up, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? They got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. Then they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloths, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. He refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Amen. Thanks be to God. I was going to start with saying way back then, many centuries ago, not long after the Bible began, Jacob lived in the land of Canaan. He was a fine example of a family man. Jacob and sons, dependent on farming to earn their keep, Jacob and sons spent all their day in the fields with the sheep. Jacob was the founder of a whole new nation, thanks to the number of children he'd had. He was also known as Israel, but most of all the time, his sons and his wives used to call him Dad. You may recognize that from the beginning of Lloyd Webber's 
telling of Joseph. There is no way I tell this story without you going and watching it again if you've got the DVD or the video or it's on Netflix or wherever else it is. It's just such a, a, a gripping read. And, and Lloyd Webber, as he told the story of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat, took some liberties, but he pretty much nailed the story because it is a story of a family soap opera. And one of the good things as we've been reading through the Genesis is we find out that it's actually been going several seasons before we got to this part of the soap opera. It is a great story. The story sits actually with a whole load of stories that come from the book of Genesis that really tell the story of, a, of what we can only call an incredibly dysfunctional family. It started with a story of, of, of Cain and Abel, one murdering his brother, and then we went on and we went through the line of Abraham being called and we got to Jacob and Esau. And we saw last week how those two brothers were set against each other by family favoritism. And now we have Joseph and his brothers and the story will work its way through the next 13 chapters. All of these come from a line of brokenness that starts with Adam and Eve. And it's showing, in a sense, human brokenness tumbling through the generations. You see favoritism, you see violence, you see ambition and selfishness, and so it moves on generation after generation after generation. Now these stories, although they are ancient stories from a time long ago, way back then, many centuries ago, resonate with us today because actually they're the same script we see in every soap opera. The same script that we see in every biography. The same scripts we see actually in our own families. Maybe not so dramatically, hopefully not so dramatically, but they resonate with us today. And those of you who have worked with families in different capacities know these stories of how things go wrong with people who are supposed to love one another. It resonates with us today. It resonates with the story of how folk behave in churches. It resonates with how folk behave in politics. It resonates with the way that people behave in all sorts of ways. In fact, much more than that, because the part of the stories are told are actually being told in Genesis to symbolize whole nations. Jacob is renamed Israel. And so as people are reading this story, they're hearing the whole story of, of Israel and how it related to Esau, who is supposedly the ancestor of all the Edomites. So it's talking about actually how nations treat each other as it listens to that. And I suppose if you think about the, the story then moving on to the 12 brothers and how they, they relate to one another, it's the tribalism within a nation the different parties, the different factions, the different classes that set themselves off in conflict yet again. And so this story rings true again and again and again. Human brokenness. So one of the things that the Bible does very well is it, it, it brings us face to face almost like a mirror at this point with life as it actually is. We know this. Sometimes we pretend it's not the case. I, I, I'm very much aware as we, as we look at what's happening in, in, in Ukraine just now, people saying, we thought this type of thing couldn't happen in Europe again. Why? 
Why did we think that? It's happened throughout the whole of human history that people have treated each other, that people have tried to grab land and resources and all the rest of it that's gone with it. We maybe haven't noticed in Europe as we thought, well, we're civilized, but it's happening everywhere in the world. One of the, one of the pains as we pray for Ukraine is I'm brought up sharp because people remind me that actually this sort of horror has been going on and is going on in other parts of the world too. We've just been a little bit blind to it. Because the underlying problem hasn't been solved. It's not solved by, by, by weaponry. It's not solved by international consortiums coming together or by NATO or by the United Nations because it's about human hearts. Why has this not happened in Europe before? Well, possibly because we're too frightened of nuclear war. That's not a great method, motive for changing human hearts. And that is what the Bible brings us face to face with. Have I got you depressed? I'll just remind you what the Bible Society have called the story. Joseph and the triumph of grace. Because the book of Genesis has two stories. One is the story of the fall and its cascading brokenness down through the generations that we see in Genesis. And we actually see that right through the whole of the Bible. And we know that that's true because we find it in our world today and in our hearts today and in our church today and in our families today and in our classrooms today and in whatever place you go today. But there is another story. And the other story is the story of God's grace. If you actually get this book, you will find that it, what it's got in the comic book form is it's got the shards of brokenness, these black triangles that, that intensify through the story as there's more hate. But it's got another story, and it's shown in gold. And it's a story of grace. It's a story of the God who made the world and said it's good and lavished goodness upon it. It's a story of God who made human beings to walk together and walk with him. And it's a story that broke God's heart when things went wrong and how he began in the family of Abraham to bring a new story, a story of healing, a story of blessing. And that will be seen in the story of, 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 of Joseph in that God will look after this family despite all its brokenness and he is about to use them to bless the whole of Egypt with food. But that story will cascade right through the Bible itself and you'll find again this in this book, how it cascades right through the Bible because God is working out through the generations a story of grace and healing that will be seen eventually in one of that family, Jesus Christ, coming to be the one who blesses all the nations, fulfilling that promise and that calling to Abraham that I will bless you, I will give you a mighty family, and through you I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And so we have two stories here. And the mighty story of grace is this. Not only is God coming as a saving God into a breaking world, but here is the other part of the good news. That salvation is continually worked out through broken people. It's not a case that God says, well, here's a broken world. Let me call this ideal family who are going to show them all how to live. They're all going to behave like the Waltons and love one another. And, uh, and that'll make the difference. Rather, God calls a family that feud and fight and behave badly like all the other broken families of the earth. But he says, I am going to use them. I am going to 
bear with them. I am going to forgive them. I'm going to pour my grace and my blessing on them to show and to demonstrate the blessing I want to show upon the whole earth. Why does that matter? Because as we look at the church today, sometimes we think, how on earth can this church do anything? Look at how broken it is, divided into its denominations. Divided into its factions. People want to hold on to their buildings rather than do mission. All the things that hold us back. But here's the mighty good news. God has called a people who can sometimes be rubbish to do something that is amazing. And he's going to keep doing that. You know, if you read the history of the church, sometimes you want to throw your head in your hands and say, how can this be the place that God's spirit dwells? But it is, because that's what it says right from the beginning, the triumph of grace working in broken people and ultimately bringing healing in Jesus Christ in whom creation itself is renewed. So the story of Joseph and the immediate story is that God has blessed the family of Abraham and he's told them he's going to bless the nations. And at the end of the story, that will happen as, as Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt and by these amazing dreams will, will provide food for all of Egypt and for his family as well. It's actually quite interesting that one of the symbols the Bible uses of God's blessing is always food, isn't it? Or the people of Israel, how they come together by eating the Passover. In the New Testament, by eating the Lord's Supper, sharing food together. Uh, and breaking bread together. And the interesting thing about the food is it's not just that, again, the, the family that, that God is blessing has food together, but they feed other people. Here they're feeding Egypt. In the New Testament, they'll feed the 5,000. They'll just keep feeding folk. And today we have food banks because the church is at the forefront very often of feeding folk. In, in this church, we have had community breakfasts, feeding folk. So we want to be a place which shares pancakes together. We did, we did that last week. Shares food together, shares hospitality together, but also opens that out as we think of, of, of feeding folk. Through Lent, we're inviting folk to bring food, which we're going to give to the Clyde Valley Community Church, which works in the Glow Centre because they're running a food bank, and we want to support that, uh, which is desperately needed in our country Today And sometimes folk will say, how, how is it the mission of the church to, to, to share food? How does that bring new believers in? And I, I would want to say, actually, we do it for a very simple reason. God doesn't want people to be hungry. God doesn't want people to be hungry. But as we do that, we participate in this mission of God to bless the world. And that begins to show and give us a right to speak of a greater need that man and woman don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God, which comes and brings healing. Anyway, back to Joseph. Joseph, oh, well, this is starting with the failure of a family, isn't it? Joseph is the grandson of Abraham. He's 17. He's working as a shepherd. He's working with all these brothers well, half-brothers, actually, because his father married twice and then twice more. He had four mothers or whatever it was. So some of these people will say this about the, the, the Bible, actually. You, know, you talk about the Bible and, and Christian ethics. Well, they had lots of wives. How does God allow that? Well, all I would say is when you read the stories, you'll find out 
It's not a very good idea. I think this is bad. Wait till you get to Solomon. He had, he had 500 wives. I cannot see an upside to that. Well, there is one. Solomon didn't have to remember when it was his anniversary. Because it was just every day. But other than that, yeah. What were we told about Joseph? We were told very simply that he brought a bad report about his brothers. And in fact, not only are we told in the beginning he, he gets a bad report, you've got this sense when, when, when Jacob says to Joseph, uh, go and see how your brothers are doing. The, the father's actually encouraging these reports. Jacob is the clipe, as we'd say in Scotland, the grass. He's the one that's checking up on folk. He's the tale teller. And you know right from the beginning this isn't going to end well. Because people that tell tales, it never ends well. It always has dangerous consequences. Now, we don't know from the text this. Was Jacob making up bad stories? Was that his, his, his bit? Or was he actually the truth teller? These brothers were not good. We find that out later. They had murderous, hateful thoughts. Was it, was it the case that Jacob actually was reporting because his father was worried about what they might get up to? And he was the one he could trust. Again, the Bible just leaves us thinking about that. But there's always a fine line, isn't there, between the sort of truthful righteousness that wants to say, I'm doing the right thing and I'll point out evil. And the na 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 na. There is a very fine line with it. It's interesting that in Leviticus, in one sense, in one verse, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. But in two verses before that, it says, do not go about speaking slander about people. As if those two things are the opposite. And the Bible right through recognizes that, that one of the signs of dysfunctionality of, of broken fellowship is the slanderous tongue. Not necessarily the tongue that's telling lies, but the tongue that's always doing down. The tongue that's always telling tales. The tongue that's always making itself better. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, it says, Immoral people will not inherit God's kingdom. And it goes on and lists a whole load of people that do sexually bad things. Idolaters, adul adulterers and thieves. And you think they'll get in the neck. And then Paul says, and slanderers. And I'll tell you right now, before we think that's somebody else, that's every single one of us. When was the last time you had a conversation with somebody about a third party and you spoke ill? And I suspect every single one of us would have to say, probably this week, if not yesterday. We do it all the time. And we justify it with our own self-righteousness, don't we? I just better warn you. It's challenging how much we bring other people down, how much of our conversation is about things that other folk have done wrong. And again, the text can be vague here. Sometimes it's downright lies. Other times it's really truthful things. It, it, it's things that, 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 that are said. But there's always that implication that they're said to make ourselves look better uh, and the other person a little bit worse. You see, that's the problem with sin. In pointing out other people's, what we fail to do is recognize our own brokenness and humility. It's always about saying, I'm a bit better than them. I don't care how bad people say I am. I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not quite as bad as them. Them. And our society's made a whole, a whole 
culture of this. Go on social media. Read the newspapers. Almost every story is finding some group of people that we can say, they're bad, they're corrupt, they're on the take, they're racist, they're bigoted, they're not. It's all about that superiority feeling. I can feel better than they are. Look at the crooked politicians. If I was a politician, I wouldn't do that. It's a really strange thing, that. Because we say this bunch of politicians, no matter which party it is or which parliament it is, we say they're all, they're all corrupt. And then, you know what happens? The other lot get in and we find out they're just as bad. And the implication is, well, if people like me got there, we wouldn't behave like that, wouldn't you? Everybody else that's got into power, everything else has been corrupted. It's what power does. We need a humility. And yet, what we find in our society, and as I say particularly on social media, is we like to be outraged. That's why newspapers sell, don't they? Story after story. Be outraged. Be shocked at what is happening over there or being done by them. Why? Because we feel a little better. I mean, this Ukrainian horror is bringing unity in our country, but it's bringing unity in our country because we can say, well, at least we're not as bad as the Russians the same thing. The bad reports that make ourselves feel better and we actually enjoy it because we're made to feel a little bit self-superior and doing okay. What does the gospel do? It always brings us face to face with our own brokenness. That's why it will be said time and time again in the New Testament, there can be no boasting. Because we recognize our own brokenness. And in this particular story, we might say it's not all Joseph's fault. His father's got a lot to do with this as well, hasn't he? (laughs) In fact, his father. His father grew up with his brother Esau, set against them because his father picked one and his mother picked the other. And they played favorites and the two brothers fought. What's Jacob doing? Exactly the same thing. Sin going down the generations. The abused becomes the abuser. And again, the Bible isn't wanting to say who's more at fault here. It's just acknowledging that this is what it is. But the focus here in this story is primarily on the brothers. And their hatred. Why did they hate Joseph? Well, he was an insufferable brat. At least that's in how I'm reconstructing the story. But I think it's, it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than that because I think, first of all, he must have showed them up. With his bad reports. And here he comes again. He's going to talk about what we're doing. We're going to be squabbling and fighting and swearing and drinking. And he's going to be the one that goes back and says, Dad, Dad, Dad. And it's not just that he's a clipe and that's annoying. He makes us feel inferior. He points out our sin and our brokenness. He's not always wrong, you know. If he was wrong, it would be easy to say, Dad, that's a pack of lies. That's not true. But I suspect they can't. Because those bad reports are partly justified. He shows them up. They're unsavory characters. And who likes that? One of the things we we don't like in church is where we are shown up. 
We like it. It's amazing. You know, if ministers preach in churches and tell you how evil they are out there in the world today and how crooked they are and how rotten they are, everyone goes away, hallelujah. But if the minister makes us feel we're suddenly we don't like that. The world does not like being told that it's sinful. But there's more than that. There's more than that. Because this dream is also telling them that they will bow down before him. And that's the second thing that people hate. That somebody else is going to tell me how I should live my life. Doesn't matter what's the government or the church or whatever else it is. We don't like someone else telling us how to live our life. You know that expression, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? God has a plan. And God's plan is to use this family to save Egypt. And God is going to do that by putting Joseph into a very key position. And the brothers are going to go to Egypt. They're going to get blessed. They're going to get food too. And how are they going to do that? They're going to bow down to him who's made the prime minister of all Egypt. That is God's plan. But their instinct right at the beginning is to say, we're not having that. We're not having leaders over us. Now, I, I, I think this is, this is part of it today for us as well. We don't think that we want people over us. One of the problems we have in churches, actually, is, is where people start to step up and take leadership roles. People knock them down. Who do you think you are? Who may put you in charge? We have a resistance. It's one of the reasons that, that churches, as they move forward, find it difficult to put people in leadership roles. I had someone um, a couple of few years back, and I, was, I got them to lead a, a ministry in the church. I, and I had to take this young woman aside as, as she was going to do this, and I had to say, I, I need to spell something out to you if you take this on. There's a cost to bear. Because some folk are going to come for you. Now, they'll mean well. They'll be your friends. But they will try to knock you down. They won't even notice that they're doing it. Because that's the instinct that we have. And anyone that's been in any type of leadership in the church or in the world will know that. Because people have rebellious hearts. And they don't want told what to do. And yet that is how God is going to bless the world in Joseph. Or bless Egypt in Joseph. But as we read this story and we recognize our brokenness in it, our, our rebelliousness in it, our dislike of being exposed within it, there's maybe a shadow of something else. One of the things about this story of grace is we read it in the Bible, we quite often feel little bits of our hair standing up in the back of our necks as we begin to think there's a sort of shadow there. Because thousands, hundreds of years later, an angel will say to Mary, the son that will be born of you will be given the throne of David and he will rule over, rule over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will know no end. The one that will come, the son that will come will be put in charge and raised up 
and all the nations shall bow down before him. Of course, that story of Jesus being made king of the world by giving God's authority over all is also a story where people rebel, isn't it? At the end of the gospel, as they are crucifying him, they say, we do not want this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. We will not take him. And so they kill him. They kill him because he exposed their sin. They kill him because his innocence shows up their guilt. There's other shadows here as well. We're told in the story of Joseph that one of his brothers, Judah, wanted to sell him for 20 pieces of silver. Come to the New Testament, one of his brothers, Judas, wanted to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. The same sinfulness that works right through the gospel that is telling people in their brokenness that they're asking the same question. What's in it for me? What can I get out of it? They're on the tape. And another brother, Reuben, he wants to do the right thing. He doesn't want to kill the innocent Joseph. But he hasn't got the guts to say it, to save him. So he, in the end, washes his hands like Pontius Pilate, the same brokenness. And yet the story of Joseph is also the story of how Joseph, rejected by his brothers, left alone, goes down as if dead to his father, as if dead to his brothers. They all think he's dead. But at the end of the story, they will find that God has raised him up. And in his raising him up, has brought life to Egypt and life that will be a blessing to the whole of the valley of the Nile and to his family too. And they will come and be reconciled with him again at the end. Now you can see the story, can't you? The story of the son who is also sent by his father to his death on a cross and then deserted by all raised up that life and blessing and wholeness is brought to the world in Jesus Christ. And here is this particular story again, as it tells us, telling us in the shadow of this dream that God is giving, this dream of blessing, this dream that will not die of what he's doing in Jesus Christ. I closed my eyes, pulled back the curtain to see for certain what I always knew. Now, how does it end? Any dream will do. At that point, I'm going to part company with Lloyd Webber because any dream won't do. Mr. Putin's got a dream of a greater Russia. There's loads of dreams in the world. Most of them are about me being in charge or me being shown as being the most virtuous person in the room. That's the dream we have. But this is God's dream shown to a corrupt people who misunderstand it and abuse it at times and use it to lord over other people. But it is God's dream, God's dream of grace the redemption of the whole world offered to us. Friends, as we stop there, I would just like that we acknowledge at this point our own brokenness. Some of us have been hurt, scarred by dysfunctionality in our families, but things that have shaped us and scarred us and mistreated us that have brought us to where we are. Others of us know the choices that we've made. 
that we have run from any sense of right and wrong, that we pretended that we're better than we are and we've tried to put other people down, or we've tried to run it all our own way. Bring all of that to God and find in the gospel of grace healing and wholeness and hope for you and for the world.